Tune in to Pioneers Post Podcasts, social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. What are the big questions occupying the brightest minds in social enterprise and impact investment? At this year's Good Deals and Beyond Good Business Conference, Connect Fund's Jessica Brown led a plenary with some of the biggest brains in social impact. They discussed whether they thought impactful enterprises have succeeded in tackling global issues so far. To put it in context, the conversation came just after an empowering speech on the potential of impact investment to end global poverty from Amit Bhatia, CEO of the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment. During the session, the speakers took a step back to look at social enterprise in a global context. Some challenging questions arose, like how can government play a part in social investment? Are impact movements currently thinking too small? And how can we expand the dialogue on the meaning of capital? Keep listening for the full discussion and prepare for your social enterprise mind to be boggled. Hi, good morning everyone. It's good to see you. I'm Jessica Brown. I'm the chair of Hatch Enterprise. I'm also the fund manager of the new Connect Fund, which is hosted at the Barrow Cadbury Trust, another Quaker institution. Um, I want to welcome today uh, our esteemed guests. I'll move out of the way so they can come on. We've got Toby Eccles from Social Finance. We've got Mary Mackay. Dr. Mary from the British Council. We've got Baroness Glenys Thornton from the House of Lords. And we've also got Indy Johar from Dark Matter Laboratories. So the... F- Welcome. Uh, right, so this is a very interesting and esteemed group of individuals. We're going to ask them each to give their thoughts for approximately five minutes, five, seven minutes, so that we can hear what they think. And then we'd like to open the floor to questions. Um, we're going to start with Mary. Mary Mackay, Dr. Mackay. It is lovely to be here, and if I can just welcome the British Council delegation, most of whom I've not had a chance to um, say hello to yet, and apologise for which, you know, whatever reason we, you are two hours on the bus. Paul Smith, who's our Indonesia director, said it was just to make him feel at home um, uh, because it's very like being in Jakarta on an average day. But anyway, I'm very glad that everybody is with us today and I'll explain a bit more about um, the reason for the delegation this week. The British Council has been working in the social enterprise and social investment space for um, around about a decade now and uh, we do a number of different things, primarily uh, capacity building and training of entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs around the world. We do uh, an increasing amount of work with governments around the world who are looking at how they develop more inclusive and creative economies. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm recovering from a cold. And we also have seen a huge increase in the international development space, uh, working with the EU and World Bank and various other organisations who are really seeing social enterprise and investment as a a really key tool to look at development and the the SDGs as a a focus and really as a... a, um, 
a vision for both international development and economic development agencies. We've seen a huge shift, I think, in terms of the scale of ambition around organisations who are looking at social enterprise and investment as a tool. So over the course of, in particular, the last three to five years, um, that's been a very significant shift where we've seen many, many positive stories. I want to come to this, and I'm not going to talk to all of it, so don't worry, but the map in the middle there was used as part of the World Economic Forum, um, an article that was written at the time, that's outlining some of the global challenges and, and the interconnectivity of all of those issues that we are facing. And I think just in terms of summarising some of the, the ways in which we have to think now and in the future about the work that we are all collectively doing as part of this movement that Amit talked about, uh, at the systems level, um, at the level of, of leadership and, and government and policy, we do have a crisis of leadership and to some extent a crisis of, of how you innovate at that system level. And at the institutional level, whilst we have incredible numbers of stories of social and creative entrepreneurs who are, um, as um, Cressy wonderfully showed us and told us this morning, really focusing on solutions. So this move away from a, a purely consumerism view of what business is about to really thinking about solutions. There are still so many issues there in terms of that, having the right kind of capability for that and the right mandate to, to do that. And at the individual level, um, I don't think I need to explain uh, issues of, of crisis and democracy and, and opportunity that's manifesting all around the world in the West and in developed economies in terms of youth unemployment, um, empl um, employment opportunities and you know all of the the things that we have seen with, with Brexit and, and in the US. And one of the key things I think in all of that in terms of how we move to the next level of collective innovation and really working together to look at solutions is that we need to really heighten the conversation that we're having about values and about capital. So again, that came up this morning and there's a huge amount of conversation that takes place about the values and why we're all in this space in the first place. So it's not that the conversation is not happening, but I think we need to make it much more primary than it currently is. So these are, you know, our values around sustainability and inclusion and being impact driven and purpose driven. Those are not sort of nice things that we are choosing to embrace um, as we, you know, deliver to other economic goals. These need to become the endpoints of the way our economies are, are designed to, to function so that inclusion and creativity and sustainability um, are what they are designed to, to deliver. And that requires us, I think, to have a different view of capital or to have an expanded view of capital. So we're all talking about um, financial capital. Of course we are. And uh, social investment um, is looking at how we reallocate uh, financial capital. But money is not the only currency. Um, and again, as came up this morning, uh, we need and we want more than money. We need to be thinking about creativity and creative capital as a huge part of the resource that we have in order to design and develop solutions and social capital, our relationships with, with one another and how you know, we really understand um, to how to collaborate and design solutions. So that view of capital, I think, which is very resonant with the work the British Council does in terms of building trust and opportunity is the note that I would um, want to, 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 to leave you on this morning.
Thank you. Thanks very much. So I think we'll um, next move on to Baroness Glenis. Thank it's you. Glenis, really. Um, and I thought it was slightly funny to be to have the House of Lords on your agenda because we're not a social enterprise, that's for sure. Um, and I'm feeling very unsympathetic towards my place of work at the moment since we were talking about Brexit until about half past one this morning. Mm. Um, I come to uh, this conference really, I think with two hats on. One is as a lifelong cooperator and the other one is a po as a politician. And the lifelong cooperator bit is the bit that convinced me and I joined the co-op. I come from a working class family in Yorkshire, being a member of the co-op since I was 16 years old. And that sort of strand that runs through a whole of my life made me, over, over the years, realize the, the strength of people's amazing inventiveness when they're looking at solving the problems of their own communities, their own lives, their own workplace, and indeed their own country. And it led me to help found Social Enterprise UK and to set up the all-party social enterprise group in Parliament. Um, and then, of course, the former, which is the being the politician, in a way, that's my toolkit. It's the toolkit that I bring to, I hope, to help support social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, either through policy change, through educating my fellow politicians, or indeed addressing what is the role of government in this. So in a way, I think, I saw the title of this session and thought, hmm, this could be quite highfalutin. I was extremely pleased to hear the opening address, which was actually, of course, about very practical impacts on people's lives. And I thought, what I can bring possibly is a discussion about political capital. Because in fact, that's in a way, uh, that's the place I find myself. And the question that I, then asked is what is the role of politics and government in social enterprise and social entrepreneurship and its growth. Um, and uh, I particularly think about that when I think when I've listened to Indy who has been a colleague of mine for several years and when Indy talks about his ideas I think I always think now how are we going to take that through in government or in politics, and you'll see what I mean when Indy speaks to you. Um, <laughs> the British Council's featured quite large in the work that I've done, and they've allowed me to travel the world. And I want to just mention a couple of things that I think, sort of t different ways that government should be involved. So the British Council sent me off to Vietnam um, to take part in the, what is very interesting, a command economy turning itself into a mixed economy and doing it partly through its investment in private enterprise, but also in support for social enterprise. Um, very interesting. And I visited uh, some social enterprises, which is what one does. Um, they, they allowed me to meet all kinds of people over the years. Um, and the one that I particularly want to mention is one that is run by, it's called Will to Live. And it's set up by two very disabled young people one of whom I'm afraid since died, and it's to help disabled young people um, get jobs, learn IT skills, and given that this is a society where disabled people, which doesn't have the infrastructure to support disabled people that we take for granted, and given that 
these people were already very disabled. What they achieved was absolutely remarkable um, and very moving indeed. And I suggest that some of you might use your um, internet to go and have a look at Will to Live in Hanoi. Um, the second thing I want to mention is Hackney Community Transport, which is now running red bus routes all over the country um, and started off providing um, minibuses for people like me who were actually running a, a youth group in Hackney when they set up in 1982, and I used their buses. Uh, and they're still doing that as well. And the second one, third one I want to mention is in Ireland, and it's called the uh, Young Social Innovators. And the point about that is that people have actually um, set up innovation, uh, innovation as part of the school curriculum in Ireland. So thousands and thousands of young people in Ireland are, uh, are going to be innovators in different ways in their communities. Now, the, the point about the, all of those is, what is the role of government? So I'm going to finish with some questions. Do we get out of the way? Do we incorporate social innovation, social enterprise in our policies? Do we pass legislation? And what should we be doing, if anything, about the uh, fact that you know, we're not doing the social investment in this country that we should be doing. I was really shocked at the presentation right at the beginning of today because you know, I've been party to setting up big society capital, putting the legislation through. And actually, we probably need to look at that in Parliament and realize that it's not working yet. Thank you. Um, I'm slightly being set up. Um, so <laughs> I, I suppose I want to take this moment just to, um, I really admire and appreciate everything that's been said, and I agree with it wholeheartedly. But at the same time, I want to just put this down, that we're also at a period where extraordinary things are being asked for. And in a way, do organizations like Black Lives Matter make a greater impact than most ventures? And are we at a new period where effectively the tools of change are no longer just enterprise? And in a way, I want to broaden the conversation. Because I think when 2004, it was a completely legitimate moment for us to start to think about enterprise as a critical tool of change. I wonder whether in 2018, we have to think bigger because the scale of the problems that we're facing are structural and significant, and they're not being addressed, right, at any level. Gender equality, pay equality, well, I think it's about 153 years at the current rate. So, sorry, longer, yeah. So my, so my point is, if we want to deal with some of these issues, we're going to have to get bigger and more strategic. Now, let's also put this into context. I think we've been reduced to thinking small. So when the NHS was built after the World War, right, we basically took, took and nationalized all the private uh, GP providers and did it in one hit. In the National Planning Act took all private development rights and nationalized them and made them collectively owned. Extraordinary things are possible. Extraordinary moments are possible. And I think it's really important that we reimagine that. And at the same time, look around the world. You've got universal basic income trials starting to happen around the world. 
We have to argue for a different structural world at a much bigger level than microfunding or 50 to 100,000 pounds on businesses. Most of us came in here because we wanted to make a dent and a change in the world. I implore you that the means to make a dent and a change is going to be more significant and it requires us to stand up and argue about bigger issues and not to be lost only on the enterprises alone. The nature of regulation around us is currently being challenged and changed. So look at what Google's going to do in Google uh, Toronto, right? You want to make a dent? Talk about the future of regulation because that's going to architect pretty much most of the world we see around us. You want to talk about social investment? Change 200 billion, which is the welfare money of the UK. 200 billion a year is, goes into welfare in the UK. Change the flows of that to not for it not to go into capita and the likes of. How do we think to change the scale? Big society capital was brilliant. But let's keep it in mind. It was, it's 0.6 of our ice cream buy annually. 0.6. We spend a billion pounds on ice cream a year. It was great for what it was, but the challenge is for us to get actually strategic and structural and not to let the conversation go off the hook by being, by being thought we can be done entirely through enterprise. This has to be a relationship between enterprise, government, which is why I'm delighted that Baroness, is, uh, Baroness uh, Glenn Thornton is here, and Mari is here, and every, every partner. It has to be a new relationship, has to be a structural compact, but everything isn't going to be just a straightforward solution. Look at what Ford Foundation are doing, Ford Foundation are doing in terms of uh, funding movements, funding new civil rights conversations, funding new... These are going to be critical. We're going to have to change the dialogue of what it means to be human. This is one of the most astounding facts, and I've got a minute, I think. Have I got a minute? Yes. Um, one astounding fact that really changed my worldview. So there's a brilliant talk by Dr. David R. Williams uh, from Harvard, um, a public health professional. He looked at the lives of black Americans and he found that people who were equally educated were dying 10 years in advance of their peers. Do you know why? It was because everyday microviolence of racism meant they had raised levels of persistent cortisone in their blood, which meant they were more susceptible to diabetes, heart disease, and other issues. That microviolence is literally killing people. The same applies to people in poverty. When people die 20 years before anyone who's rich, we have to understand that's institutional murder. This is the scale of the movement we have to get into. And I think the opportunity is now. Stuff like universal basic income is not a means to actually redistribute. It is to, a means to unleash everyone. And I think... I just implore, when we talk about capital and purpose, I think there is the biggest capital on the table right now. And I think over the next three to five years, you will see strategic transformations of our society. And ventures have a part to play. But as many of you are passionate about the change, I think let's also argue about the big change that needs to be on the table. With that, I end. Yes. Now over to Toby. I'm such a lucky boy following Indy, aren't I? <laughs> Thanks, Indy. Um, okay, interestingly, I was also, um, I've been thinking, I mean, we started social finance a decade ago, so I guess this has been a period of reflection for me, starting social impact bonds in 2010, 
quite a lot's happened since, 108 of them around the world, $400 million invested in them. It's a start of a certain way of working. But I think, when I think capital meets purpose, I think we have to start with capital's role, maybe this is because of the world we're living in at the moment, capital's role more widely. That at the moment, you know, if you look at investment in something like Uber, and I use Uber, so I can't claim to have hugely negative views in some ways, but the focus is maximize the capture of positive externalities, pass the negative externalities to others, governments and so on, and minimize your contribution. And that's the role of capital in an awful lot, in the vast majority of investment around the world. So when we think about capital and its purpose, I think we have to think of that more widely. And capital talking authentically about purpose needs to think more widely about its role and its relationship with the wider world. And we are living in a world which has got some really big long-term trends affecting all of us. We are seeing a huge rise in wealth for a very small proportion of the population, which is set to continue with artificial intelligence, availability of data, and so on. And so, at the same time, with tax competition happening between countries, there will continue to be more and more difficulty with the tax take and greater and greater availability of philanthropy. So we're seeing an absolute shift in where does money that does good come from? What proportion is held by the public sector and what proportion held by the private sector? And what conversation needs to happen between them if we're going to get the outcomes that we want and think about and deserve. And the role of capital and investment and the focus on outcomes that we have is a vital contributor to that. But just bear in mind that very wide context of change that we're talking about. Um, I also think there's another element when I looked at this title, that capital always moves with purpose. The best uses of capital have been to solve big problems for people. I would like to buy a house. Now that is easier than it was in the 60s because mortgages are more available. It's a marvelous and wonderful thing. Insurance has also done marvelous and wonderful things. But it's also been used in the last sort of 10, 20 years as a way of, it's expanded its role, if you like. You know, you're, you're being brought with, whether it's PPIs, whether it is um, insurance that you don't need, you know, being always asked, would you like um, to insure that for three years rather than one um, in every, with every product you buy, which is a 90% margin product last time I looked. So 90p in the pound is an immediate profit from that particular transaction. So again, it's an, it's a, it's a, some of the structure has been fantastic and purposeful, and other parts of the structures have been basically working out how we do rather well out of customers. And so, again, when I look at the impact space, our focus has continually been what is the purpose, what, is, what, what, are, you, what are you trying to achieve, and then what do you need from capital? And how can capital make that difference? And so I think it's really important as we think about impact investment. You, know, you look at charity investment in the UK, some of that's worked, some of it hasn't. You look at social impact bonds, I see them as a real starting point. The work that Amit is doing around an outcomes fund, we see 
more and more the potential in markets where um, outcomes are reasonably clear, we should see uh, those markets, those social value markets being based around outcomes so that we can have consistent quality. I have to admit, and maybe I'm a bit unconventional here, I'm heartily sick of the private-public debate. It's merely proof we have no idea whether either of them are doing any good. And that's just not good enough. Let's find out whether they're doing any good by having transparent clarity on the outcomes that people are generating, and then we should care much less about whether they're private or they're public. I'll put one caveat to that last remark, and that is, just in case you think that I've gone completely off-piste, um, and that is that there are a lot of institutions that are looking after highly vulnerable people. We're the only people who can really know how they're doing in those institutions are those individuals. And those people deserve that the governance of those entities, in my view, has some sort of higher purpose than simply profit, generally speaking. And so, where you can't, but where you can focus on outcomes and you can get really clear on what you're aiming for, then you should have a mixed economy and it's a more effective economy and everyone learns from each other. So all I'm trying to aim at here is that capital needs to be authentic about its purpose more broadly than simply talking about impact investing, that we've got some big trends, that we're all a part of making that change happen and that we need to think very carefully about its purpose in this field. Thank you. Excellent. Right, so we've largely got a, a very complex, but I'd say more glass half full picture here of capital as a force for good in the context of complex social change. Um, some fascinating thoughts about different actors. What's the role of markets? What's the role of government? What's the role of civil society, social change, and the enterprises uh, and the actors that are trying to create that change uh, at a venture level? Um, I think we'd like to open up the floor now. Some very good provocations have been made here by some very, very intelligent individuals, and we'd like to hear your thoughts as well. So um, why don't we take two questions at a time, and could you please make sure to state your name and please ask a question? Thank you. We've got this gentleman in the front. Hi, everybody. I, uh, my name's Jamie, and I'm a, a proud Irish, deaf, and disabled South Londoner. My journey began 10 years ago. I had a fully-fledged idea, helped with uh, by Leonard Cheshire. Uh, and then the politics around 2010 turned very toxic. So as a result, I'd been tested badly three times, made homeless three times, been in hospital, and I've spent the last five years being a disability rights campaigner. I'm a fully trained health professional. I came top of my class. We start as a society, stop looking at talent and ability, and started transactioning these people back into care. Margaret Thatcher started the Independent Living Fund. Ian Duncan Smith went to five court cases to close it down. Half of those recipients 
including many awarding winning academics, researchers, artists, comedians, and now in care. They're very angry. If you don't understand the social model of disability, I'll give you a heads up. Rights, not charity. Nothing about us, without us. And, and what's your question? So, two questions. Can we stick to one? Okay, well, one's from a female deaf person who, couldn't, who should have been here, but she's ill, so she was meant to be my PA. Excellent. So, she said, when is it going to be time up to excluding female disabled voices and talent by being digitally excluded and barrier excluded from being able to show her talent? And she was at 2012, as a trainer, as an exclusion and equality issue, and now she has to work because her business closed down. And mine is, when are we going to take the toxicity out of politics in this country? Because in a post-Brexit world, you're going to need talented people who are here now. Thank so you. So how can we fund that okay. in order to do that? Thank you. So we've got questions there. Is there one other question from the audience? This gentleman in the middle here at the back, just on the aisle here in the black jumper. Hi, Ed Robery from um, Bristol and Bath Regional Capital. It, it's a question on um, wealth creation. I guess um, when big capital moves into any space, there will be undoubtedly some wealth creation. Um, as a movement, should we be neutral about how that wealth is then distributed or should we be taking a position? Right, panelists, anyone want to tackle these two questions? I'm not going to tackle that one. <laughs> I might, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can tackle the gentleman at the front, but I do, he has, I'm with him on the issues that he's raised about um, people with disability. Um, I think that, and I'm going to be party political, okay, sorry about that, but I think that the, one of the dreadful things that's happened in the last five years or so is the stigmatization of disability and the stigmatization of poverty. And I think that's created huge divisions in our society. Um, so what, I mean, we, therefore, people in politics have a duty to deal with that issue and to, to be side by side with you in your whatever enterprises you wish to establish. I think that's absolutely vital and I try to, I try to do that. I work with some very inspiring disabled people in the House of Lords, Tanny Gray-Thompson and others. So um, probably in terms of British politics, the House of Lords is one place where there's a great deal of awareness <laughs> of, of, of the issues of the disabled um, because we have a very large, I mean, because we're appointed and not elected, it, it, and I don't approve of that, it does mean that we actually do have a lot of people in wheelchairs and with all sorts of disabilities in the House of Lords, and we hope, and I hope, that we are part of the solution and not the problem that disabled people uh, face. In terms of social enterprise and social entrepreneurship, my observation is that the... Uh, that uh, some of the most inspiring and most uh, uh, s I don't know, sensible is not the right word. 
the, the most impactful social enterprises have been those that have been created by disabled people for disabled mm. people. Um, and I think, and I hope all of us are helping those, including those of you who have access to capital. So I'm now going to pass this on to the people Indeed, who can answer the second question. <laughs> I think, Indy, you wanted to? I yeah. just wanted to build a little bit on your question. Um, if I was to make a call on that, I'd say when we start to see welfare, not as a cost, but as an investment. As soon as we start to see welfare as an investment, I think then we can change the terms of the debate. Uh, and exactly, exactly. And second part of it for me is actually we have to start to recognize the extraordinary capacity of what it means to be human. So we have reduced humans to units of labor, which is part of an industrial idea of how we see humans. But if you look at the full capacity, every human being, you've, everyone in this room, is more extraordinary than any general artificial intelligence currently out there. Any general artificial intelligence out there. Yet, do we genuinely unlock the full capacity of 68 million people in the UK? Not by a long shot. And that is the real revolution at the middle of the table. And I think that is the revolution actually automation and other things can bring, is to unleash the full capacity of what it means to be human. But it requires actually quite a different view on how we, our social contract has to be reframed quite structurally. And I think that's what we're really fighting for, and I totally agree with you uh, on that. I, I would also, just about the inclusive, I, I do think there's a real issue with big capital moving into impact investment. Are we going to replicate the same concentrations of capital that we've seen in every other market? and the concentration of value that we've seen. So there is an issue of what does inclusive growth genuinely mean in that story, and how do we do that? And I think that's got to be on the table as part of that question, so I agree, but I'm sure there's more well-rounded. Well, let me be a contrarian on that. And here's what I would say. I think we are discussing two different things here. We're discussing a morality, which is very critical, and to the humaneness of the society at large, and then building, we're discussing institutional framework that allow large wealth, et cetera, you know, to find the right causes in the right way without it flooding and you know, doing what we call impact washing. And I think both are not mutually exclusive. I think it's important to do both for the reason as follows. Morality allows us to be idealistic because without that idealism, we will not envision the world where we can give everyone the rights we hope they'll get. It's critical. But think about it, that how did we come here? These capital markets were not created on idealism alone. You know, if we figured out, hey, there's going to be an equity, there's going to be a debenture, there's going to be trading, there's going to be stock markets, there's going to be securities exchange commissions, there's going to be laws around. We created a plethora of laws so that the world can coexist we will need to create a whole new economic system which will allow institutions to take birth and for us to be able to figure out, okay, how will we give liquidity to those investors who are putting money in many of you out here, you know, building you know, social enterprises? We cannot do without either. Both have to go hand in hand. We will have to rebuild the institutions, rethink the instruments, re-envision how our markets will work, and idealism is important. I, I think in this competition for the two, we naturally end up giving, depending on whether we come from left or right, one more importance than the other. And I think it's important that in balance to step back and think, how will we build the highways around which impact capital can travel to right causes around the world? 
We could not have driven on these roads without those road signs. What are the road signs for an impact economy? We are building those. And we will have, we'll need governments to collaborate, G20 to speak up, G7 to come together, and then we'll have the standards around which we can build a real impact economy. Thank you. Right, we've got, do you want to go, Toby? Yeah. Just, just very briefly. Okay, good. I think and then the, we might have time for one or two more questions then as well. Great. I think that the failure to connect um, employment support and, and disability or mental health is a huge issue. Um, we've spent a lot of the last three or four years trying to get connectivity between the Department of Health and Department for Work and Pensions. We now have around £30 million available for support for, for people um, with mental health issues to get into employment. Um, now, very different set of issues, but it's again, it's a failure to, of imagination um, created by the structural pieces of government. Um, and so I think, so that's, so in other words, I, I think what I'm saying is I'm with you. We're part of trying to change that movement. Um, but the, what's happened on the disability side, I think, is terrible. Um, on the, should we have an opinion on the distribution of, of what happens, I think that we're seeing one of the things that is amazing about this, this mi microcosm of the impact investment community is that people are arriving with their background flooding them with uh, an, an unknown ideology on both sides. So when you have people coming, talking from a, a, a capital, from the capital side, it sounds really awkward from the social side. When people talk from the social side, the capital side, they fundamentally don't understand markets and they don't understand how it works. It works like this. Um, but I think we absolutely have to have that debate properly, directly, rather than um, passive-aggressively and Britishly. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I think that we have to engage. My personal view is we have to be showing what is right, and that includes reasonable distribution. Thank you. Right, so we've got time for one or two more questions. We've got this lady in the corner with the beautiful scarf. Hi, my name is Joe Ashburner. I'm from Swansea, so the other side of the border. Um, and that sort of leads to my question about, it's a two-part question, but I'll keep it brief, about there being disconnect between central government and the de devolution of Wales and Scotland. Um, in Wales, we have 70,000 social enterprises. But I'm sitting here listening to eye-washing amounts of money being spent on recycling and social benefit and that's all great. I run a manufacturing business which is a social enterprise. It's tiny, we only have nine employees, we've got big ambitions. We do find that when we're trying to look for investment it's very prescriptive so we're having to fit into what people want to achieve by giving us money and yet we're doing something we feel that no one else is doing so we're almost having to educate the people that have money to invest. It's really hard work. Um, I just wonder whether there isn't a block, first of all, because Wales has seemed to be, you know, we might as well be in Patagonia. Um, and there's a, such a big border. Um, and whether it is, would you say that cap capital investment is too prescriptive? Is capital investment too prescriptive? That's the first one. We've got one more. Um, there's a lady in the front here as well with a lovely flowered tunic. 
apologies for reducing you to your... Uh, hello, uh, my name is Jackie Camille. I come from Egypt. Um, uh, I led a small assignment of, of research for the World Bank on social entrepreneurship ecosystem in Egypt. And a big part was about capital, investment, and so on. And it kept com coming up from investors and from uh, social entrepreneurs that uh, whenever a social entrepreneur that has a solid uh, business model, usually in clean and green or uh, handicrafts, and I mean some, some uh, a startup with a solid product or a solid business model that is actually generating revenue and profits, uh, approaches uh, an investor, they usually completely ignore the social part because the number one question that goes in the investor's uh, mind is how much are you going to forego from my return for the social return on investment? And I hear you guys talking about like the capital meets purpose and all of that. And I, I'm a practitioner, so I would like to know, I mean, like, how do we get from where we are to where someone like Amit is? How would you convince an investor that actually purpose is an investment rather than, okay, here is some money that I'm ready to donate for a social startup or for social cause and so on. Mm -hmm. So how would you create that, I don't know, paradigm shift or a whole new set of, of values and the way an investor whose the primary goal most of them is focusing on is basically maximizing their capital. Okay, thank uh, you. How do we move from this to that? And I think it's a bit related to the question that was asked before. Yes, two very good and very relevant questions. Does anyone want to tackle them? <laughs> I, I, I'll... Uh, Say, say a couple of things. I think just based on the experience of the work that we've been doing with the, the British Council globally, I think one of the sort of opportunities and challenges is just that point of, of elevation that we're all at. So, you know, really taking that um, understanding that we are building or rebuilding a new economy that has a different mindset, a different narrative, um, you know, similar players, new players, different rules, it's not all new, so we're not throwing everything out that, um, that has worked up until this point, but we are having to re-look at how certain things have worked. Um, and one of the things that I think we, we, we're finding, and I'm not talking as an expert in the social investment space, I'll, I'll pass across to some of these guys to uh, say a bit more about that, but I think there is a challenge around this tipping point where uh, new instruments, new organisations that are seeking to address these issues and develop uh, social investment pathways and instruments get to a point where credibility or being seen to be real and being able to respond to um, their uh, shareholders and stakeholders in terms of being able to demonstrate success are defaulting to old ways of demonstrating that success because we all need to demonstrate success. It's the same in the public sector, it's the same in academia, it's the same in, you know, in business. So you have a lot of people within institutions of all sorts of kinds who are very well-intentioned towards this trajectory, but we're all having to figure out how these mandates shift and we're all having to build them. And so I think where we hit against these walls, the challenge is to remind ourselves that we are building something new here. Everybody has a stake in that, and, and nobody has the absolute right answer. Mm -hmm. And where we get to choose to invest our time and energy in you know, looking at how things work, I think having that tone of we are all learning, and it's important that we all, you know, we all do this together is, is, is really important. Um, mm -hmm. and, and similarly, for, for, for your question, part of 
The solution is about how we elevate the opportunities, how we elevate the requests, how we start to think about the space that we're all in for the social and creative economy in terms of new supply chains at a global level so people can see um, where there are opportunities to, to find the solutions that they are, are looking for and not just to have to look directly in front of them. Um, I think that's, that's part of what we need to, to do. Did, I think India wanted just to come. Just a quick thing. I, I think one thing is also look backwards. I was part of the RSA Inclusive Growth Commission, and one of the big conversations there was: Do we need more regional banks and distributed banking and building societies, industrial building societies? So I also think we're we're at a we're at a period where our centralisation of our banking infrastructure actually is one of the core reasons you're not being financed. I would argue is less to do with actually whether impact capital can work. It's a fact that we don't have functioning regional banking infrastructure, and I think building societies might be a really good thing. Um, just And the other thing I think I'd just put on the table is I, I think if you want to raise risk capital, tech is a much easier space to re raise risk capital. You can raise millions and millions of pounds for actually prototyping a product with tech. Unfortunately, we don't have that scale of risk capital in the social enterprise space. So one of the big issues is we don't have the development headroom so to do some of this stuff. So you can raise a million pounds on, on, on seeding a tech project very easily. Um, but actually, it's much harder to do a million pounds in social enterprise. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a real issue of that discovery of public good space is just not well funded yet. And there's a kind of interesting question around that. Mm. Um, and Mr. Eccles. Just uh, two, two separate things. I think um, the first observation is that there is a secret about the impact investing community, and that, that is that it's two different communities that are wrapped together and talking the same language. And one is saying, we can change the capital markets and capital to have impact, and we can really look at that and understand it. We should be profit maximizing, but demonstrating purpose and looking for opportunities and changing the way that capital works. And that's a really valuable, powerful movement. And there's another community that's saying, in our work, our mission in life to generate social value, we should not always be working with grant money. We should also be working with money that comes back again and that brings in a degree of financial discipline and that makes people think about revenues and that splits investment from from revenue and actually that really is a powerful movement and it's a powerful movement. And then the two sit together and confuse the living daylights out of each other, which is what they've been doing for about a decade. So I just thought, folks, that we should be really clear about that. Then on your point about um, a lot of the capital that's arriving starting with impact first comes also with a whole bunch of conditions because it thinks still somewhat like a grant maker. I think we are still discovering there were a few John Kingston's venturesome back in the day was a really great, really straightforward, pretty rapid execution. Here's money that has some purpose. We lose a little bit of it, but we keep recycling it. I think we need to see more um, rapid delivery impact investment finance. Um, thank you. Excellent. Right. Excellent note to end on. I think we've had some fantastic discussion, hopefully food for thought for the rest of the day, um, sweeping systems chains all the way down to some granular and detailed analysis. So thank you to each of the panelists. And if you'll join me as well, we'd like to thank you. Please.
You've been listening to the Pioneers Post podcast. We'd like to thank all of the experts on our panel for continuing to ask social enterprises most challenging questions. To watch Amit Bhatia's speech that preceded the discussion, head to the video and podcast section of the Pioneers Post website.